is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman today. Former President Trump slams the jury verdict against him in a big civil case out of New York. We go in-depth into the potential political fallout. An influential health panel is changing its guidelines when it comes to breast cancer screenings. Also, if you keep cool this summer, you can thank the snowpack. We'll explain. Thank the snowpack over and over for many things, but... We will start with a civil verdict against former President Trump. With us is Gene Rossi, attorney and former federal prosecutor and Republican strategist Eric Mitchell, president and CEO of Life Flip Media. Uh, Eric, I'm going to start with you. Uh, we all know the verdict now and what was awarded to E. Jean Carroll. Former President Trump just posted right after the verdict. I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. The verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. Is this verdict going to affect him at all in a good or bad way? I wish I would could say yes, but his followers will follow him through anything. Uh, and we've seen that year after year. Uh, you know, Donald Trump, it, his following just... Uh, they seem to look over anything. I mean, granted, he will spin this as he wasn't found guilty of the rape section of it, but everything else he was found guilty of. But that's how it's going to be spun. It already is, obviously, right on True Social, responding right away. But this is tactic number one. This is why his followers are now against all the other Republican candidates trashing you know, Ron DeSantis on the daily. You see it out there. So will this... I don't think this will harm him in his in his eyes. I think it's the Republicans, like myself, who are on the fence with looking for a correct a candidate that we want to get behind in the Republican Party. Are the shenanigans of, of President Trump, are we just done with them? And I, I think this is going to push people more towards the middle than towards Trump. But his supporters will always remain the same. They're not going to be pushed away. I don't, I don't know what it takes for them to be disenchanted, but I don't think this is going to do it. Gene, uh, I want to ask you your take on what do Democrats do with this? Do they immediately, do Democratic political campaigns immediately begin using this? Or do they sit back and go, you know, there are a whole bunch of other cases still to come, and a lot of them are going to be decided before too long, or we'll get verdicts at least, or charging decisions in a lot of these. Do they just sit back and wait for more to come in? Well, I ran for lieutenant governor of Virginia, and I came in a distant third in a field of three. So I wouldn't consider myself a brilliant (laughs) political strategist. But if I were a Democrat, and I am in Virginia, I would just let the other side get into an internecine battle. And I I agree with Eric on uh, almost everything he said. Um, I just want to supplement something it may not cause the core Trump supporters to uh, walk away from him, but it's going to affect the margins. It's going to affect the Eric Mitchells, the ones who aren't real keen on Trump now because he does have baggage. This is going to make it easier for them to look at another candidate in a Republican primary. But I got to say to the Republicans, uh, there is no way in the suburbs in November of 2024, that the the women voters and the uh, independents, uh, how this is going to help Donald Trump with those suburban voters that he got 
that he got in droves against Hillary in 2016. I'm looking at the long game. In the short game, I don't think it's going to affect him more than maybe two to five, maybe 10 points, because there's really nobody in the Republican Party that has the heft, the gravitas uh, that Trump has, the presence in the room. So is this going to hurt him dramatically, this verdict? No. But I got to say this, for those who are saying that this is a victory for Trump because they didn't find he was guilty, if you will, of rape, it's like somebody saying, uh, I won because I was found guilty of manslaughter and not premeditated murder. That's not a very good argument. All right. Thank you guys uh, so much for joining us today. This is Gene Rossi, their attorney and former federal prosecutor, also a Republican strategist, Eric Mitchell, president and CEO of Life Flip Media. But we want to point out that uh, what former President Trump has posted on uh, Truth Social, of course, it's an all caps message. It says, I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. The verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. Exclamation point. Of course, we have seen the photos of Mr. Trump with E. Jean Carroll taken at about the time that some of these events are alleged to have occurred. Right now, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is now set to recommend women get screened regularly for mammograms starting at age 40 instead of 50. Here to explain the guideline change is Dr. Richard Reitherman, medical director of breast imaging at Memorial Care Breast Center in Fountain Valley. Doctor, the United States Preventive Services Task Force now says women should be screened every other year starting at age 40 instead of 50. But experts like you are saying the guidelines are great, they're better, but believe that women should be screened annually instead of every other year. What do you think of these uh, new recommendations? Well, the new recommendations are definitely a step forward. The backstory is that most of the professional organizations, including the American College of Radiology and surgeons and medical oncologists, have recommended annual mammograms starting at 40 for at least a decade. The U.S. Task Force, however, influences some managed care, some government programs, and in the Obama Care Plan, the U.S. Task Force is the one that designates screening guidelines and standards of care for all forms of medical care. Why are we making the change now? Is there an uptick in incidence of uh, breast cancer that uh, we're watching out for? The uh, It's been known for a long time that screening mammography beginning at 40 decreases mortality due to breast cancer in all age groups. The difference is that the older a person is, the higher the risk, and therefore screening is a more efficient mechanism. So if people are looking at efficiency of how many dollars you need to spend to produce this much benefit, it's better in the older age group. However, the younger patients have more to lose they have more years to live, and they generally can have cancers detected later. And that's why screening mammography beginning at 40 is critical and necessary. So what about women who are high risk and genetically predisposed to breast cancer with uh, cases in their family? Have the guidelines changed for them or do these apply to them as well? They, the U.S. Task Force is a little vague in terms of describing what the risk factors are, other than describing high-risk women may have a different schedule recommended for mammography. In general, women who have a particular family history who are gene positive for a number of genes 
or have atypical biopsies, begin mammograms and probably breast MRIs 10 years younger than the earliest family member that was diagnosed or by the age of 30. So with this change in the guidelines, uh, should women on their own also take more care about breast self-exams at an earlier age and pay more attention to that as well? One of the messages for any guideline is that the individual needs to take responsibility, accountability, and advocacy for themselves. So self-advocacy is what you're talking about. And breast self-exam is extremely important in all age groups and more important as a woman gets older or she has a family history of early breast cancer, especially in women who have dense breast tissues where the cancer may be masked at any age, but particularly younger patients. Breast self-exam is one of the best ways to detect cancer early in a compromised mammographic situation. Um, You know, I read that the task force last updated the guidelines in 2016. It's been a while, but We've known for a while that breast cancer makes up 30% of new cancers in U.S. women every year. One in eight women will develop breast cancer in the course of their lives. Knowing these stats, why weren't the screening guidelines, do you think, updated sooner? I think it's a combination of things, and it wasn't any maliciousness on the part of the U.S. government task force. They were simply looking at or interpreting the same data as all the other agencies did and interpreting it differently. And I go back to the fact that if you want to bang for your buck, screening younger women will not detect as many cancers as screening elderly women. So if money is an issue, then that's one reason. All right, we want to thank uh, Dr. Richard Reitherman at the Memorial Care Breast Center in Fountain Valley. Thank you so much. Coming up, a social media movement wants you to stop mowing your lawn this month. Have you seen that hashtag, Mm -hmm. no mow May? Yeah, but is that a good idea? That's one of the things I guess we're going to be finding out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, though, Hollywood studios are kind of posturing that they have plenty of content to get by during the writer's strike. Jay Christopher Hamilton is a TV, radio, and film professor at Syracuse uh, University, also a, a former entertainment attorney here in L.A. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, my pleasure. So Thanks one example me. is we have a Fox CEO, Lachlan Murdoch, says his company's in, in a really good place. They got, uh, they got content they can use. It's not dependent upon writers who are out on strike. Is this, as, as uh, we said, posturing, or is this a kind of a ploy to let the writers know, hey, you don't have all the leverage. We've got some, too. Well, you know, the, I mean, look, the news of the impending strike has been, um, the studios were aware of that many months in advance of the strike. So, Studios were preparing for just this particular event, meaning they began to stockpile scripts and begin to identify content to acquire, to license for their programming platforms, renew shows that might have been on the bubble, quote unquote, meaning shows that were uncertain whether they were going to come back. So they've been preparing for this for some time. So there's no surprise to me that um, Fox would be presenting kind of this this uh, strong front as, hey, we're prepared for what we're dealing with. and We're not worried. Well, I, that's not surprising. I mean, the studios and the media corporations, are, they're going to say this. They're not going to be crying for help publicly, saying they're suffering. But, you know, they say this, but Disney demanded their showrunners and writer-producers continue certain duties despite the ongoing WGA strike. They they actually wanted them to write. Would this be happening if the studios and the execs were really in as good of shape as they claim? 
Well, you know, as a person who, quote unquote, lived through uh, the 2000, 2007, 2008 strike, I was actually an executive, uh, an attorney in business affairs working uh, for ABC Studios, a Disney-owned company, when they stroke. And I was actually responsible for drafting some of those notices that went out to writers requiring them to render uh, producing service, quote unquote, uh, but not uh, literary, not writing services. So that's more or less kind of the protocol and the expectation. Whether they enforce that expectation remains to be seen. But it is it is the uh, the wise and prudent decision from a paperwork standpoint. Is the fact that the studios are kind of posturing and talking about how much content and how long they can last, is that a signal that, yeah, this strike might last a while because both sides are kind of uh, getting entrenched? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, look, there there's some significant uh, issues at stake here, and I think it's hard to appreciate considering how nascent the, the new technology AI is. But we're really on the cusp of what the Internet was for all ways we com- all in various ways we communicate uh, today, AI is going to transform all aspects of entertainment consumption, as well as the production distribution. So the studios are smart to be entrenched, as are the writers smart to be entrenched, because there's a lot at stake. And the fact that the studios are, are unwilling at this moment to engage in any bargaining on that topic, I think, points to the significance of that particular um, aspect of the strike. You know, other unions have publicly supported WGA writers. Teamsters said they wouldn't cross the picket lines. We've seen actors like Rob Lowe posting pictures on social media at the picket lines. The MTV Award Show was forced to tape the event instead of having a live show because the actors and performers said they wouldn't cross the picket lines. If we see more of this type of support from other union members, will that turn up the heat on the studios? And how important is it for uh, WGA to get that support? Oh, yeah, there's no question. Look, you know, the evidence that we've seen thus far uh, when it comes to other unions, IATSE, SAG, respecting uh, the WGA and not crossing picket lines is good evidence that they are going to, the other unions are going to stand strong with the WGA. But I don't think the studios are prepared for the, the, the major guilds to all be on strike. We know now the DGA is in, in negotiation. SAG is going to be up pretty soon. I, I can't predict whether or not they will go on strike in support of the guild, WGA, but I will say this. If you do see a, an alignment of all these major unions, SAG, after um, DGA and WGA, it, I think it's going to be an overwhelming amount of pressure on the studios that they will not be able to contend with. So it remains to be seen what happens, though. Yeah, that's why I was kind of thinking if there's anybody smart on the producer side of the table to sit down and try to settle this with the writers as quickly as they can and, and kind of an idea of divide and conquer, because pretty soon you got the directors and the actors going to be sitting down for their negotiations. And I would have assumed that the that the that the producers would have been behind the the eight ball here and wanting to get this settled before they have to deal with two other possible strikes. Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, uh, the the issue for the producers, though, already at the studios and the and the um, the programming services is, you know, as you may be aware, they're also going under. They're also under tremendous pressure financially. We we just saw recently, um, MTV Networks, owned by Paramount Global, laid off a number of people. Um, you know, Netflix. A lot of these um, organizations are going through very challenging financial times and having to lay off staff having to uh, figure out a way to contain costs. So there's a, so bef- even prior to the strike, 
they were they were already a lot under a lot of fiscal pressure and obviously the bottom line and their stock price and you know their, their shareholders all of that stuff is very very um important in how they assess what to do in um in the strike situation so my point being is that even before the strike happened they were already a little bit behind the eight ball and trying to figure out how to maintain their businesses and maintain their profit margins which remains to be seen at the moment all right. Thank you so much, uh, Jay Christopher Hamilton, TV, radio and film professor at Syracuse University, also former entertainment attorney in L.A. You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Elsa Ramon and for Charles Feldman. We are getting closer to summer and those heat waves is going to have us wanting our air conditioners. Uh, yes, but it means a lot of demand on the electric grid. But the state is getting some help in the form of the Sierra snowpack. Here to explain is Michael Wara, director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at Stanford University. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Whitewater rafters are excited because they have raging rivers for their thrill-seeking. We're adding to our water supply. Now we may be uh, enjoying more power from the snowpack. Tell us how. Well, the snowpack is our largest water reservoir. It's much bigger than the water that's held behind dams in the state of California. And it basically, as it melts, it flows down the rivers into those dams, and we use the, the, the dams to generate a lot of electric power. The last few years, that hasn't really been available. We've been carefully managing the little bit of water that we do have to meet our domestic you know, water needs rather than as a power supply option. And so We've been much more dependent on natural gas-fired power for electricity, especially on those hot afternoon days you were describing, and also um, much more dependent on imported electricity. But this year, you know, we're 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 lucky to have um, kind of an abundant, really super abundant supply of water stored up in the Sierra that I think should do us do us, you know, do a lot of good in terms of improving electricity reliability, avoiding those flex alerts that you may have heard about that tend to come in the, on the hot summer days. But I know a lot of people hear this and they go, hey, it improves energy reliability. Yay, we like that. But they really want to know, does this mean our electricity bills are going to go down? Well, the less that we burn fuel to generate electricity, you know, the, 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 the lower the bills can be. And, I, you know, fuel is one part of our electricity bill, the, you know, which we'll use less of this year because we can use free water that fell out of the sky as opposed to natural gas that we have to import mostly from other states. Um, but a lot of our electricity bill is also created by the cost of the wires and the poles and all of the equipment that's needed to deliver the electricity from where it's generated to where we live. Okay, so, so part uh, of the bill won't go away. Okay, so that b- b- brings me to to my question of: Do we have the infrastructure to be able to distribute this newly found power, hydropower, from our snowpack to whoever gets it to benefit uh, those of us paying the monthly bills uh, for our electricity and water and so on? We do. And honestly, the, the California hydro system, the system of dams in the Sierra is really is one of the oldest systems in the world to do to kind of generate power in a mountain range and then deliver it a long distance to big cities like L.A. and San Francisco. The Edison system in Southern California was really kind of innovative and pat- it's sort of a, a technological wonder of the early 20th century, as is the PG&E system up north. And so that the the wires and all that is built and ready to ready to work 
the you know the challenging part is that we've had a series of years the last few where despite the system was built and ready to work there wasn't the water to to spin the turbines luckily this year there is and so we should take advantage of it and be excited all right so i know some married couples who uh one partner in in the couple is really intense about turning off all the lights all the time. If you walk out of the room, turn the light off immediately. And, uh, you know, I'm not referring to myself or anybody that I know. But oh, uh, can, you. can you say uh, can you say over the air so that everyone can hear you that with this extra power from the snowpack, you don't need to worry about that that much? Or should you still maybe it's a good idea to keep conserving power when you can? Well, in my house, it's the teenagers who leave all the lights on, but um, I'll leave my wife out of this. But uh, I think we all still need to conserve power. I, you know, the, the one thing to note is that uh, the the recent heat waves we've had, in particular, uh, the, the heat wave in 2021 was truly unprecedented in the history of California and in the history of our electricity system. We barely made it through. And without having to to do you know blackouts and and I think we all need to be aware and 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 thoughtful about how we use energy in our economy and not waste it right and 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 the reality is that especially because of wildfire costs right the need to to make sure that the grid doesn't cause fires in the fall um, electricity prices are have gone up the last few years and so. Um, it's worth it. It's still going to be worth it to turn right. those lights off when you leave the room. So what you're telling me is I'm still going to lose that argument. I still have to turn on the lights off, right? <laughs> I right? Think, I'm afraid I can't, so. I yeah. can't get out of it. You know, next, you're going to tell me I still have to take the garbage out. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you, uh, Michael Wara, a director of the Climate Energy Policy Program at uh, Stanford University. Well, maybe you've seen this big movement on social media. Have you seen it, Rob? Hashtag no mo may. Yeah, no mo. May. No mo. Yeah. yeah, no mo may. That's what it's called. Well, the idea is uh, to not mow your lawn, basically, for the entire month. That's the whole campaign. And to let the grass and weeds grow to help pollinators. Now, why did that fire off in the middle of doing nothing? <laughs> I didn't even touch it. Are se- I, right? Those keys are so sensitive. There is a poltergeist in this studio. <laughs> I, we promise it's not traffic, but but sensitive yeah, keys. Right. Okay. Anyway, uh, so uh, there, there's this movement going on right now, and people think this is a really good idea, and they're helping the environment. But Diane Blazek is executive director of the National Garden Bureau, and says, "Well, maybe this is a well-meaning campaign, but it could do more harm than good." I know it seems like a good idea, but why is it possibly not? So, yeah, it's it's a good thing that you brought that up is there's good intentions, but like you said, you may be letting weeds grow, which would not be good. They could be invasive weeds. It all depends on, you know, what's going to grow during those four weeks when you're not mowing. All right. So maybe it's, a, you know, as some people might be convinced that it's good for the uh, the insects and the bees and the butterflies, and that's all great. But then you've got another uh, factor to contend with, and I'd like to hear your answer on that, are the people who like the idea of no mow may because they're, how do I term this, lazy and don't want to do the yard work. <laughs> right. Well, you're going to have those people out there no matter what. Um, but, yeah, they, they might use this as a cloak um, saying, oh, I'm doing something good for the pollinators when 
in reality, there's other options, other things you can do rather than, quote, being lazy. You know, if you just plant more perennials and more annuals around your yard, more shrubs, anything that's blooming that provides nectar and, and pollen, that would be way better than letting your yard go to weeds. Or, you know, I, I was actually reading that letting your yard grow uh, might actually kill it. How How is that possible? Well, um, yeah, what's going to happen is, like I was saying, maybe some of the invasive weeds or just weeds in general are going to take it over. And if you think four weeks of not mowing, no average lawnmower is going to be able to tackle that. So you've got the process of letting all this stuff overgrow. It's going to take over. You're probably going to have to use more um, harmful tools to get rid of everything that has grown when you weren't mowing than if you had just been mowing all along. But the whole idea really is let's help the pollinators and there's so many better ways of doing it. I mean, just think of the entire month of May, if you don't mow, it's going to take a long time for any good plants to grow and bloom, where if you intentionally planted things that are blooming and you did it at continuous intervals throughout the growing season, the pollinators will have way more uh, beneficial resources to their at their disposal. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, what can you do if, uh, say, you don't want to let the yard just go crazy? Uh, what are some of the things you can do if you really want to help the bees and the pollinators and the butterflies and what have you? What What well, are some I things you could plant? Yeah, by starting small, you know, like maybe you just take this area around the sidewalk or this area by the fence or this area by the house and you want to plant some annuals like some zinnias um, or petunias or salvia that the hummingbirds love, um, butterfly uh, butterfly bush, um, depending in some areas. I know that um, it's considered invasive. So we say, oh, plant the new ones that are sterile. But do the research for your local area. And if you want to attract butterflies, there's certain types of plants. If it's hummingbirds, it's different. If it's bees, it's different. There's like um, pollinator.org. They have amazing resources on what plants you can plant that are appropriate for the native bees and butterflies in your area. It's very geographic specific. So if it really truly is about laziness for someone, then um, I don't know where you're looking at me. Excuse, I, I, I wasn't. I was looking in your general direction, though. <laughs> um, then uh, maybe desert scape might be the best yeah. option. <laughs> concrete. <laughs> concrete desert scape. Well, that that might work, but it's not going to do anything for the pollinators. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah we in California, you know, coming out of a couple of years of drought, a lot of people they just got rid of their lawns and replaced it with uh, stones and, and rocks and what have you. So uh, they probably don't have that problem. They're probably not worried about the bees and uh, butterflies. But uh, Diane Blazek, uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, National uh, Executive Director of the National Garden Bureau. Well, that's going to do it for KNX in Depth today. I'm going to have to get ready to go uh, work on my lawn some and help the bees and the, the pollinators Good and hummingbirds. Good luck with that. And Good luck with that. I'm, no, what I'm going to do is I have a cat who loves to eat grass. 
I know. So I, you know the cat go outside and just eat the grass. Uh, but I have to. I do the same thing. But then I make him stay out there in the backyard yeah. because you know what's going to happen when they come into the house after they've eaten grass. Oh sure, but you can always mop, mop that up. No, I don't know. Yeah. I, I make sure he he does or, what he needs to do. Or first. you turn the lights off so you don't see it on the floor. <laughs> see, oh, there instead, you go. And step in it and save oh. save power. No, All right, thanks. That's it for KNX and Def. We'll be back tomorrow at one p.m.